Welcome to Inspiring Philosophy, the audio format of the powerful apologetic videos from Inspiring Philosophy Ministries. Please consider supporting Inspiring Philosophy on Patreon to get early access to videos, live Q&As, and to help build the largest apologetic library on the internet. Now, let's get started with the show. When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be one hundred and twenty years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of the name. There is no passage in the Hebrew Bible that draws as much speculation as this one. These four brief verses have captivated many, and a plethora of interpretations have been proposed in order to explain what the authors are referring to. Among scholars, the three most popular interpretations are as follows. The first is the sons of God refer to descendants of Seth, and daughters of men refer to women born of the line of Cain. So some of the men from the righteous line of Seth took wives from the line of Cain, which led the godly Sethites into sin and rebellion. The second view is the sons of God refer to earthly kings or tribal leaders who used their power and authority to begin practicing polygamy or the rite of first night by taking as many as they chose. The last view, which is the majority view among scholars today, is the sons of God refer to divine angelic beings who took human form and had unholy giant offspring known as Nephilim. The first view was historically more popular among early theologians like St. Augustine, Martin Luther, or John Calvin. However, many scholars from the other two views have argued that it doesn't account for the details of the passage. First, Meredith Klein points out the Hebrew term for man would have to change meaning from verse 1 to verse 2 without explanation or indication. In verse 1, man most likely refers to all of mankind, whereas in verse 2, it would have to refer to just the descendants of Cain. This shift in meaning is not indicated by the author, so it is unlikely. Next, the text does not distinguish between Seth's line as sons of God. Cain's descendants were still descendants from Adam, and therefore could have been seen as sons of God. Michael Heiser points out there is no indication marriages between Seth's line and Cain's line were prohibited. We were speaking of a time prior to the Mosaic Covenant, and distinguishing between Jews and Gentiles. These and many other issues that scholars have pointed out have led to the Sethite interpretation falling out of favor. Michael Heiser proposes the divine interpretation of the text, that the passage is referring to the idea that angelic beings, known as sons of God, took human form and mated with women to produce unholy giants known as Nephilim. This is the majority view among scholars today, and although I have the utmost respect for Heiser and scholars who take this view, I have slowly grown to reject it. 
The interpretation sounds interesting, but the more I study the passage and the context, the less I see it as the intended meaning of what the text is trying to tell us. The more I look at Genesis, the more I have become convinced this passage is referring to polygamous rulers who abused their power and brought condemnation upon humanity. So I'll offer the arguments for this view and then address the main arguments for the angelic interpretation. My argument will be based on four points. Immediate context, surrounding context, the larger context of the entirety of Genesis, and cultural parallels. First, if nothing from the Hebrew Bible survived to the present, except these four verses, it could hardly be argued this passage refers to any sort of union between women and divine beings. Go with me for a minute and just look at what the text says by itself, without thinking of what later authors might indicate. The text begins by telling us mankind began to multiply throughout the land. Then it introduces another group, called sons of God, who wed daughters of men. Then in verse 3, God says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. Oddly enough, God's own statement tells us who has caused his anger. It was men, not men and divine beings. Verse 3 indicates the two groups of verse 2 were two classes of humans. Verse 1 sets the context. It is about humankind producing offspring. And verse 3 indicates the problem arises from two classes of humans. Proponents of the divine interpretation have often tried to counter this by citing parallels to Genesis 3, which does indicate the sin of a divine being, the Nahash. But if you notice, the parallels between Genesis 3 and Genesis 6 are with the sins of Eve, not the sins of the Nahash. Eve saw that the fruit was good, parallels the sons of God, who saw that the women were beautiful. Eve took of the fruit, parallels the phrase that the sons of God took as their wives any they chose. So parallels to Genesis 3 indicate the sins of the sons of God were that of human sins. Second, if the sons of God were divine beings who sinned, like in Genesis 3, we should see a separate judgment passed on them, like in Genesis 3. Instead, God's anger is only directed at humans. This seems to indicate only humans are at play, and not humans and divine beings. Third, the term Son of God in Hebrew is a phrase that refers to a divine being. But given the context here, as we are arguing, that might not be the case in Genesis 6 and there are times humans are referred to as children of God, although the Hebrew phrase is never used. For example, in 2 Samuel 7.14, David is identified as God's son. Later Jewish messianic movements outside of Christianity identified the Messiah as son of God, yet did not perceive him as divine. The children of Israel are also indicated to be children of God. Outside of the Hebrew scriptures, it was common to refer to the king as a son of God. In the Ugritic myth, King Karet is identified as son of El. In the ancient Gudea cylinder, the ruler of Gudea is also referred to as a son of a god. So is possibly another Sumerian ruler. So calling ancient kings sons of God was an ancient cultural norm, and given the immediate context of the passage, there is nothing incoherent about the sons of God being ancient rulers who became corrupt by becoming polygamous, which the line, 
they took as their wives any they chose would indicate. As John Walton says, In this interpretation, the sons of God are the heroic tyrant kings of old. The daughters of men refer to any female in the kingdom. Next, what about the Nephilim? Well, the internal context also doesn't suggest we are talking about quasi-divine beings. First, John Walton and Kenneth Matthews note the phrase, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward, could refer to the very next line of the sons of God mating with the daughters of men. Thus, the passage could mean the Nephilim were not the direct descendants of the sons of God, but simply a group that existed before the transgression of the sons of God. Therefore, the reference to Nephilim would just denote this was a heroic age. Now, Michael Heiser has argued extensively from the Hebrew grammar that the phrase, and also afterward, refers to after the flood, and that the text does refer to the Nephilim being the children of the sons of God, whether they were divine beings or ancient rulers. Now, Heiser does make a very convincing argument that the Nephilim are the offspring of the sons of God. But if this is the case, the immediate context also implies we are talking about a class of humans, not quasi-divine giants. It is very rare when a word is directly defined for us, but in the case of Genesis 6, the Nephilim are defined in verse 4 as simply men, namely mighty men who were of old, the men of the name. Thus, although the text probably refers to the Nephilim being the offspring of the sons of God, the text also directly defines what this group is, namely men. Just like the sons of God are defined as men in verse 3. Drawing on the work of Paul Copen and Douglas Jacobi, who also agree with Heiser the Nephilim are semi-divine, we can see in the simplest sense of the context, the word doesn't refer to anything other than prideful humans attempting to make a name for themselves. To quote, The fallen ones, warriors of renown, literally men of the name, sought their own honor and glory, like Cain, who named a city after himself, and the architects of Babel, who sought to make a name for themselves. In contrast, followers of Yahweh seek his honor and glory. In other words, the Nephilim are directly defined in verse 4 as prideful humans who sought their own honor and glory. The attention is on their prideful nature as humans, not as semi-divine creatures. They also note this idea fits with our next argument, the theme of the surrounding context of Genesis, of mere mortal men trying to make a name for themselves. We've already seen Genesis 6 parallels the sins of Eve in Genesis 3, not the sins of the Nahash. But the sins of the sons of God parallel the sins of Cain's descendants in Genesis 4 as well. Kenneth Matthews notes it is likely the themes of Genesis 4 carry on into Genesis 6 and culminate in the flood, which was sent because of the transgressions of humans, not humans and divine beings. In Genesis 4, Cain's focus is on himself, not his family. It is all about his name and his own reputation. He builds a settlement which is about honoring the name of his son. His descendant, Lamech, is boastful and gloats his own accomplishments to bolster his own reputation. Then, of course, we hear about his polygamous actions as well. After the break in the story to present the genealogy from Adam to Noah, it would make sense for the story to pick up where it left off with the sins of humanity reaching a peaking point in pride, violence, and polygamy. 
This is probably why Genesis 6 refers to the sons of God taking wives, plural, as they chose. My argument is it picks up where we left off with Lamech taking multiple wives. Now, not only have the descendants of Cain fallen into polygamy, the rulers of humanity, the ones meant to mediate between God and the rest of mankind, have fallen into this sin that God detests. They have become greedy and lustful, and their descendants are also focusing on making a name for themselves, not on honoring the name of God. Genesis 3 is about the fall of the first priests, Genesis 4 is about the fall of the family, and Genesis 6 is about the fall of civilization. The sequence just simply flows. As Meredith Klein says, In Cain's dedication of his city to the name of his heir, there was foreshadowed the lust for a name that was increasingly to mark these city rulers until when the city-states began to be theocratically conceived. They esteemed themselves veritable sons of the gods, and so men of name. Structurally, the accounts of Lamech and the sons of God are much alike. In each case, there are the taking of wives, the bearing of children, and the dynastic exploits. Genesis 6-1 and following simply summarizes and concludes the course of dynastic development, which had already been presented in the individual histories of the several rulers, indicating how the evil potential of Canaanite kingship, betrayed even in its earliest beginnings, was given such full vent in its final stages as to produce a state of tyranny and corruption intolerable to the God of Heaven. Next, the surrounding context after Genesis 6 also indicates we are talking about polygamous kings. Right after this section, the author says all flesh had become corrupt and God once again pronounces his judgment will fall on mankind, not humans and divine beings like in Genesis 3. But also notice how Noah is described. Noah is contrasted with the unrighteous humans of his day as being a righteous man, and we are reminded constantly of one of the features of Noah, that he had one wife, and his sons each only had one wife. In fact, between Genesis 6 and 8, we are told five times Noah only had one wife. This seems like overkill for a high-context society. The author seems to want to remind us a distinguishing feature of Noah is that he was monogamous. Copan and Jacobi admit, in contrast to the ungodly marriages of Genesis 6, 1-4, Noah and his sons are all monogamous. In other words, if an important feature of being a righteous man is to be monogamous, it would make sense that he was contrasted with the prideful and lustful sons of God, who took any of the daughters of men for wives as they chose thus indicating they were polygamous like Lamech, and contrasted with the righteous Noah, who was monogamous. Thus it seems the surrounding context also indicates we are talking about how humanity devolved into violence, pride, and polygamy. This interpretation just makes more sense with the surrounding context, and it would seem odd to interrupt the spiraling fall of humanity to tell us about divine beings marrying women, and then only pick up again with the sin of humanity. The polygamous ruler interpretation just fits better with the context, as John Walton says, Cohabitation between angels and humans has no immediate obvious connection with the purposes of Genesis. An angelic intrusion is considered out of place in the sequence of episodes recounting the advance of human sin. 
Next, the full context of Genesis better fits with the idea we are talking about mere humans becoming polygamous and caring only about making a name for themselves. As we noted in our video on Genesis 4, the authors or compilers of Genesis constantly condemn polygamy by narrating the disastrous effects it causes. The sins of Lamech represent a fallen state of humanity. By Abraham having a son with Hagar, it causes strife between Ishmael and Isaac, and jealousy in Sarah, and ultimately, Hagar is banished because of it. By Jacob having two wives, it creates competition between them, and then favoritism, jealousy, hatred, and numerous other problems within his family. Since one of the reoccurring themes in Genesis is the author's hatred of polygamy for the disastrous consequences it causes, it would fit that the authors would indicate this is one of the sins which brought about the punishment of the flood. It simply aligned with a reoccurring issue they bring up. Second, Meredith Klein notes Nimrod also falls into the same category as the Nephilim, as a mighty man. The same word used to describe Nimrod is also used to describe the Nephilim. Yet it is clear Nimrod was not semi-divine, but a descendant of Cush. This connection also makes it likely the Nephilim were viewed as human. Third, there are similarities in the sequence of Genesis 3-8 to Genesis 9-12. You first have the man of God fall from grace, followed by genealogies, then Genesis 6 parallels Genesis 11 of men attempting to make a name for themselves, which results in divine judgment, which then leads to God calling a new righteous man. In Genesis 6 it is Noah, but after the Tower of Babel it is Abraham. Klein says, the ungodly dynasty of human kingship challenged the ordinances of the Creator until at Babel it was ripe for judgment. Genesis 11.1 parallels Genesis 6.1. The spirit of the two is the same. The kingdom builders of Shinar, like the ancient Gibberim, were bent on a name. And of course, each episode leads directly to the divine reckoning and intervention. The earlier age led to Noah and the kingdom in the ark. The following age led to Abraham and the kingdom in the promises. But the sins associated at Babel were yet again that of human origin, not humans and divine beings. Thus it is likely the same concept also applies in Genesis 6. Finally, proponents of the angelic view like Michael Heiser, James Hoffmeyer, and Gordon Wenham Note one of Genesis' closest cultural parallels is the Akkadian Atrahasis. Both parallel in structure of creation, population increase, the flood, and the new start. But if this is the case, then the same structure should apply to the prelude for the flood. Alexander Heidel observes both begin by noting a population increase. Both then also note a period prior to the flood, utilizing the number 12. In Genesis, it's 120 years. In the Atrahasis, there is 1,200 years of the gods trying to destroy the overpopulated humans before they unleash the flood. Thus, the 120-year period probably parallels this and refers not to a limiting of ages, but to a grace period represented symbolically as 120 before God unleashed the flood. This was the understanding in other Jewish works as well. But another interesting parallel, found in the Sumerian fragmented version at Nippur, says that prior to the flood, 
is when kingship was lowered from heaven, which would also parallel the idea of the sons of God, referring to kings, whose appointments were of divine origin, not necessarily divine beings mating with women. Thus, given the immediate context, surrounding context, larger context, and the cultural context, it is quite probable there is nothing supernatural happening in Genesis 6, but simply rulers appointed by God who became corrupt and polygamous, which then produced mighty heroic warriors who only cared about making a name for themselves. Now let's take a look at the arguments for the divine interpretation and the problems I see with them. These were the arguments I used when I took this view, but over time I began to notice problems with them. The first problem should be obvious. The main arguments proponents of this view rely on is by shifting context from other parts of scripture and ignoring the direct context of Genesis that we just went over. Immediate context should never be trumped by other passages. But despite that, scholars still do bring up excellent points that cannot be ignored. I'll present them in order of what I feel is the weakest argument leading up to the strongest. The first argument is the fact that every other time in scripture the phrase Son of God shows up, it most likely refers to divine beings. And I actually agree the phrase does refer to divine beings in places like Deuteronomy 32, Psalm 82, and Job 1. But the reason I accept these passages are referring to divine beings is because the immediate context demands it. So why doesn't the same logic apply in Genesis 6? Why import the context of these other passages into Genesis 6 and not let this passage speak for itself? Words can change meaning between authors. For example, in the Bible the word goy is a general word for nation. However, centuries later, the word became a slang term for a gentile. Michael Heiser in one of his papers does an excellent job defending the notion that Psalm 82 refers to divine beings. He responds to an objection that his opponents use from Exodus 7.1, where God says Moses will be a god to Pharaoh. So they argue the same logic could apply in Psalm 82 and simply refer to humans acting like gods. But Heiser notes this is comparing apples to oranges and misses the point of the terminology in the pertinent verses. In other words, the context of both passages determines what each author means. But using that same logic, why can't we apply the same reasoning when it comes to Genesis 6? As we have demonstrated, the context most likely implies the sons of God in Genesis 6 are mere mortal kings. Importing context from other passages can be helpful, but it should never be used to trump the immediate context of a passage itself. The next argument is an attempt to draw parallels to giants in the Bible, namely Numbers 13, and references to the size of Og and Goliath. Surely the presence of giants, which Numbers 13 says are descendants of the Nephilim, must indicate a divine origin, as humans cannot grow to the heights of Goliath or Og. However, there are numerous problems with this idea. First, although the Masoretic text records Goliath at nine and a half feet, the Greek Septuagint and the Dead Sea Scrolls note he would only have been around six and a half feet, so nothing inhuman there. And given the average height of the standard Israelite soldier at around five and a half, Goliath would have towered over anyone. Next, the height of Og was never recorded at around 13 feet. 
That was the size of his bed. Even Heiser recognizes the size of someone's bed, doesn't tell us how tall they were. The IVP Bible background commentary notes the reference to Og's bed falls in the context that is more in line with the author's boasting of Israel's spoils of war. Just as many objects described as gold, silver, or ivory are not made of those, but only decorated, overlaid, or gilded with them, so we need not imagine a bed of solid iron. The account is still in the Bronze Age, when iron was considered precious, so it would not be strange for this to be noted as a remarkable piece. The bed is about 13 feet long and 6 feet wide, the same size as Marduk's bed in the Temple Ezegila in Babylon. Beds were not just used for sleeping, but were often used for reclining on during feasts and celebrations. So the bed represents the wealth of Og that Israel was able to obtain through conquest, not his height. Of course, the most often cited passage is Numbers 13, which is the only other time in scripture the word Nephilim comes up, and it is used in a report about who was inhabiting the land of Canaan prior to the conquest. So this passage is used to argue the word Nephilim means giants, since it connects the word to people of great height. But wait, let's stop for a minute and ask who's giving this report. It doesn't come from Moses, let alone God, but the ten spies of Israel who didn't want to initiate the conquest, despite Joshua and Caleb saying they could conquer the land. That should be the first clue to tell us we are relying on the report of unreliable witnesses. The text treats their testimony as exaggerated and fear-mongering in contrast to the more reliable report of Caleb and Joshua. The next thing to remember is the Nephilim are not included in a more reliable report of the inhabitants of Canaan in Deuteronomy. Considering it was the fear of the Nephilim that led to Israel having to live in the desert for 40 years, you'd think they would not have been so easily missed or forgotten later on. What is probably happening is the ten spies are exaggerating the report to scare Israel into not attacking the inhabitants of Canaan by drawing back on the collective memory of these heroic and prideful warriors. This should be obvious in their claim that they were like grasshoppers to them. If we have to take this literal, we should expect giants over 100 feet tall, but this is clearly an exaggeration by anyone's standard. Kenneth Matthews says, when we consider the evidence of Deuteronomy's recollection of the Canaanite peoples, it is better to understand the allusion to the Nephilim, therefore Numbers 13 is figurative, cited by the spies because of the violent reputation attributed to the Nephilim from ancient times. The most logical reading of the report of the Nephilim in Canaan is nothing more than a scare tactic, which is why we don't see Deuteronomy or Joshua and Caleb confirming the report. The height of the average Canaanite may have been higher than the height of the average Israelite, due to Israel living in slavery for several generations. But there is nothing here to suggest inhumane sizes. Now it is true Numbers 13 contains a variant spelling for Nephilim that has affinity to an Aramaic word for giant. But notice this spelling is not in Genesis 6. The context of Numbers 13 help explains why the variant spelling was used, since the bad report of the ten spies was an attempt to indicate giants. Likewise, the context of Genesis 6 also should indicate the meaning of the word Nephilim there. The variant spelling in Numbers 13 is probably an indication of wordplay, and trying to instill a double meaning 
to drive home the scare tactic. Next, as far as we can see, Jewish writers living in the Second Temple period clearly did understand Genesis 6 to be referring to giant offspring of divine beings. It's clear from reading later works like Enoch or Jubilees. Even the Greek Septuagint translates Nephilim as giants. But it could simply be the case later authors were heavily influenced in thought by Greek mythology of Titans and then tried to find anything that could function as a parallel from their own scriptures. Other cultures obviously had influence on the Hebrew works from that time. In Babylon, where Israel spent a significant amount of time, there were legends of divine creatures called Apkalu, who existed before the flood. These beings were said to have taught culture and civilization to humanity, and also produced offspring that were half-human. Other texts speak of Marduk banishing the Apkalu to the subterranean areas deep within the earth. It is commonly argued the Apkalu gave rise to the Nephilim legends. Well, I think the Apkalu inspired the works that we see in places like the Book of Giants or Enoch. But there are not enough parallels in Genesis 6 to make this connection. Again, I think it's more likely Jews looked back into their scriptures to find parallels and wrote later works with this interpretation in mind. Genesis also doesn't indicate sons of God taught culture and civilization to humanity. They clearly define these things as entirely human in origin, in places like Genesis 4, again cohering with the non-divine interpretation. The focus on Genesis 3-6 is on the fall of humanity, and there was only one mention of a divine transgressor, in the garden. Humans seem to be mostly on their own after that. Jean Botero suggests the Apkalu were just embellished legends of Umanu, who were just human sages which is similar to what I'm arguing happened with later commentary on Genesis 6, turning the Nephilim into semi-divine giants. The thing to remember is despite later influences from other cultures, Genesis remains quite primitive, and there lacks evidence of later scribes trying to dress up Genesis to more explicitly indicate giants or quasi-divine beings, which speaks to the veracity of the text. Instead, Later authors simply produce their own works as commentary on Genesis 6 to indicate their interpretation. But these can simply be viewed as incorrect, given the evidence we already went over. What I think is most likely the case is there was influence from Greek and Babylonian thought, and many Jews looked back into their scriptures to try to find anything that could function as a parallel. The Nephilim seemed like they could fit, so the legends we find in works like Enoch were then constructed. A problem arises when we get to works like Jude and 2 Peter, as they seem to mention angels committing immoral sexual acts. Let's start with a more explicit passage in Jude. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe, and the angels, who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. When you look at the pronoun translated as likewise, it is masculine, and proponents argue this shows it goes back to the angels, since the word for cities is feminine. Thus Jude says it was the angels 
that indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desires. However, it is clear to anyone the context Jude is relying on is the book of Enoch, not Genesis 6 directly. Yet the overwhelming majority of Christians, including Michael Heiser, do not accept Enoch as scripture, and for good reasons. Yet why does Jude quote from this book? Well, we have to remember Jude also refers to another apocryphal work, the Testament of Moses, where the archangel Michael and Satan fight over the body of Moses. There is no hint of this event happening in scripture. It is a much later tale to attempt to fill in what happened after Moses died. Jude referencing it doesn't necessarily mean he accepts it as historical, as the intention of his epistle is to draw numerous examples to express a theological point. It reminds me of when I have listened to sermons by Tim Keller, and to illustrate a point, he draws examples from fictional works like The Iron Giant or The Lord of the Rings. This is not an attempt to state an historical fact, it is drawing from a story to state a theological fact. I contend this is all Jude is doing, bouncing around from numerous examples, some historical, some fictional, to make a theological point, not argue an historical truth. This is not too different than Jesus constantly teaching through fictional stories, known as parables. So although Jude does draw from Enoch in the Testament of Moses, it seems to be more for theological points, not to argue these events historically happened. The same logic can be applied to 2 Peter where he says God cast angels into Tartarus. This is a word used in Greek mythology to refer to the lowest parts of the underworld, where titans were chained after their war with the Greek gods. Are we to suspect Peter accepted all of Greek mythology because he refers to Tartarus? This can hardly be suggested from the whole epistle. Again, I have no problem accepting both Peter and Jude are relying on the Book of Enoch to illustrate theological points. But this is not an historical claim any more than Jesus' parables are. The Book of Enoch has its own problems for why scholars do not accept it as historical. No one ought to use Jude's reference to argue Enoch is actual history, but one can still draw theological or ethical lessons from both. Thus, in conclusion, context from later passages is not enough to overturn the direct context associated within and around Genesis 6. I agree other biblical passages and the cultural context can give us a better understanding of certain passages, but it should never trump the immediate context, and when it comes to Genesis 6, the context overtly suggests a completely human story of what is taking place. However, ultimately, this is such a minor detail to fret over, and even if Michael Heiser ever sees this video and destroys my arguments without even trying, this is not a hill worth dying on. But at the end of the day, as I go through Genesis, I have to try my best to let the text speak for itself, so I can present a better understanding of what Genesis is trying to tell us. If you want a case for an alternative view, you can check out this video on the Pixels and Papyrus channel by scholar Ben Stanhope. Ultimately though, what I see is a continuation of the story from Genesis 4. Humanity is now spiraled out of control, that now, even the rulers, who were meant to lead and shepherd mankind for God, have turned to sinful ways, and their descendants carry out the seed of Cain in seeking a name for themselves. Much like in Genesis 4, the theme is the seed of the serpent has continued to grow, and it points to the need for a true son of God to mediate between God and humanity properly. But this son of God cannot be like the fallen ones 
who became greedy and lustful, or their descendants, who filled the earth with violence and only cared about making a name for themselves. What humanity needs is a true son of God, one who will proclaim the good news to the poor, set the captives free, give sight to the blind, and liberate the oppressed. The seed of the serpent had grown to fill the whole land, and something needed to be done before humanity wiped itself out completely. One man and his family will be spared, and hopefully one day, the true Son of God will come from his line. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inspiring Philosophy. And a special thanks to the Inspiring Philosophy supporters who made this episode possible. If you enjoyed this episode and want to help the ministry of Inspiring Philosophy continue, prayerfully consider becoming a supporter of this show by visiting patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. That's patreon.com forward slash inspiring philosophy. And if you want to watch Inspiring Philosophy videos, make sure to follow Inspiring Philosophy on YouTube.